0: Grace and peace is ours through our Lord Jesus Christ, and it's great to see you here at the house of the Lord, braving germs. <laughs> Glad to be with you. One of the reasons I'm very excited to bring God's Word to you today is real personal. I don't think that I've ever preached to an audience this scripture. i maybe taught it in a Bible study, but as a sermon, and it has some very meaningful and interesting thoughts in it in a discourse, it's just the middle of the discourse that Jesus had during his three year ministry in the, the, the soup of uh, struggle and uh, the, the battle for souls, the war that we're all in, that he and John the Baptist were the leaders of his generation in the Holy Land. And uh, John the Baptist is still alive, but he's been imprisoned. And these guys are cousins, they're best friends. John is the great promised forerunner. Isaiah chapter 40 talked about a great forerunner. And Malachi chapter 3 said it was a messenger that was going to come. And then Malachi chapter 4, the last verses of the Old Testament says, Elijah, who's already gone when Malachi was preaching, was already passed to heaven, says, Elijah will come and turn the hearts of fathers toward their children, talking about the great ministry of John the Baptist. And so, this is… this story with Jesus and John the Baptist is an epic part of the the story of Christ's life and the meaning of the Old Testament and how it points ahead to Jesus. There's just so much that would tickle a preacher's fancy and also you as Christians. So, here's a question to get started. What is the greatest commodity we have as a church? The greatest commodity, is it The music. Probably not, right? You you love it that you come here and we have solid musicians. We have more than most churches our size. We're kind of a small church. And even our pastor said right at the beginning, You're gonna it's gonna rock today, right? Is that the greatest command? Is it the preacher? Uh, I'm going to, I'm a district president, so I help churches uh, by my job to find their next pastor, and when your pastor takes a call, it's an uncertain time, and people start to drift away from church, and so the chairman of congregations and I have a lot of conversations where I'm encouraging and holding their, holding them up, so just so happens that last night I got a text from a chairman of our church in Tyler, incidentally, who happens to be my oldest son, Donovan. <laughs> And he's not afraid to talk to his dad straight up about his angst. So they've been vacant of not having a pastor for just uh, three months. And he said, and and the pastor they called they thought was going to take the call, but he declined it yesterday. Anxiety's high, right? Their their vacancy pastor is Tom Schmidt. Remember Nikki Hill? It's her dad, and uh, he happens to be the dad of the pastor that was there that left. So so. But he's only there till Christ, uh, before Christmas. So Donovan says, we, he's, tell, he's pushing his dad a little bit. We, we went almost two months without anybody before Tom came. If that happens again, we will not be a sustainable church. We feel that way, don't we? We even say, you know, the, we hate, us leaders in the church will say we hate to admit it, but the pastor is a really big part of the success of the church when, because we hate to admit it because there's another commodity that's more important than the pastor right? That you know what I'm getting at. Things, these things are important that I mentioned, music, pastor. What about the location? Frankly, this location is not all that great. You have to be coming here to find this church, right? But it was cheap property when the fathers bought it. So, location, mm, it helps. Not the greatest commodity, right? Everybody's got to be friendly, well, Charles Spurgeon, one of the greatest preachers of all times, walked into a church when it was a really cold, snowy day and there were only like 10 or 15 people. Nobody said hi. Sat in the back pew. The preacher wasn't there. And an elder stood up and just told the gospel and Charles Spurgeon became a Christian. So that commodity is not the location or the building. Our church in Hutto has a brand new building. It's a church we started in Round Rock, right? It is, I was at the dedication just a couple uh a week ago, two weeks ago. Oh, it's just beautiful. It's going to serve them really well. I'm so excited because now, and it's a great location too. Building's great. Location's great. Preacher's solid. But it's still not the greatest commodity. You know what it is. The greatest commodity that we have is the Word. Under a tree. Sitting on a cactus. We have the Word of the living God, it is the greatest commodity. All those other things are superfluous. Jesus and John the Baptist had none of the things I just mentioned. They had the Word. John was, they both were open-air preachers. He was out in the wilderness, right? Didn't even have a place to, 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 to lay his head and eat locusts and wild honey and wearing skins from camels and and John had an austere ministry. People went out to him in droves because they were getting changed by the Word of God. They're, they were feeling lost. They were found. They were saved. They were repentant. They were forgiven. They could admit how stinky they were and yet be at peace with themselves and with God and with each other. They went out there selfish. They came back selfless. They were cleansed people by the baptism, which is such a beautiful thing when you understand that baptism is an objective cleansing, a shower, cleans you up after a a long life of ugliness gone. See, so John the Baptist is in prison, and it seems like the Word is being pushed away, right? But now Jesus is out there. John had said, I must decrease. He didn't know it was going to be through the imprisonment, though. And John is imprisoned, why? Because he dared to tell the governor, Herod, you shouldn't have your brother's wife. You stole your brother's wife, send her back. You're sinning against the Lord and you'll come under God's judgment. Herod, being the sovereign, put John in prison. He was afraid of the people. He didn't want to put John to death. He's kind of afraid of John because he still had a conscience. It wasn't until later when Herod's wife and daughter asked for him to be beheaded, that Herod put him to death. But that right now in this story, John the Baptist is in prison, and Jesus is now moving around preaching open air. And of course, the crowds that love to come hear John preach, now coming to hear Jesus preach and teach. Now, while, he, while he's teaching, you know, I don't mean like in the middle of his words, but while he's out there, John sends two disciples John's in prison, but his disciples come, you know, feed him and take care of him and they're, you know, through the bars. And they, he, John sends these two disciples and says, go ask Jesus if he's really the one who was to come or should we expect another? And John's having some not doubts, not doubts in God, but doubts that maybe he got it wrong because Jesus hasn't brought the judgment that John promised. He's, a, he's preaching peace, Right. Uh, we, we can't analyze it too far. We don't want to do that for John. But he's just struggling to know if, if maybe he didn't quite get it right. Pressure does that to you. It makes you reevaluate everything if you're an honest person. And John's doing that. But he knows what to do. Send messengers to Jesus. Jesus says to them, this is all in Matthew 11. He says to them, you go tell John that I do all the things Isaiah said I was going to do. Because Isaiah was John's book and Jesus' book together. They talk, it talked about both of them. I heal the sick. I, I make the blind see. The deaf hear. I cure disease. And blessed are those who are not offended because of me. I am the guy marked by the Old Testament to be the Messiah. I do all the miracles of the Messiah. Go tell him he got the right one. Interestingly, Jesus doesn't say... John, tell John, I'm going to die on a cross. Well, he's telling the disciples that, right? John had said he's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, but he didn't know exactly how. So, he sends them back. While they're leaving, and people have heard him, he probably answered them out loud, you know, not whispering. While they're leaving, he's got a crowd around him. And this is what he says, what'd you go out there to see? A reed shaken by the wind? Somebody who just is out there preaching a popular message, this or that? He goes, no. Did you go see somebody who was famous because they were rich and famous? No. He goes, you saw a prophet and more than a prophet. Of those born among women, there's not a greater person than John the Baptist, but the least in the kingdom of heaven, meaning the least New Testament believer, is greater than John. And he means because you're going to know some things that John didn't know. And that's when, I know this sounds like I'm preaching, but I'm just getting to the text. But you can't, you can't enjoy the text like I want you to and God wants you to if I didn't give you all that background. I got to get you into it, right? So he said, what'd you go out there to see? And he says, you saw a prophet and more than a prophet. And then we're ready for the text. So throw it up on the screen there. This is uh, Matthew chapter 11, starting at verse 12. He just, Jesus just said the greatest, I mean, John's the greatest, but the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he is. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been forcefully advancing and forceful men lay hold of it. For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who was to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. This this is our first of two parts that we're preaching today for us. He says, from the days of John the Baptist until now. Well, that's just a short span, right? John started a few months earlier, but it feels like forever. Like eight months of COVID feels like forever, right? He, He says, from John's ministry was this forceful campaign. John forced the Word of God into the community and into their, their nation, and people went out in droves, and the spiritual leaders that weren't very spiritual were angry and jealous and upset, and they'd go out there, and when they went out there and they didn't have any intentions of listening to John, he would lambast them. You brood of vipers, why are you coming out here? Repent of your sins too. John was a forceful preacher of law and gospel, and people had their lives changed. That's what Jesus is just admitting. But remember, greatest commodity, Jesus is making sure. And then Jesus says in this verse, the prophets, in the, the law and the prophets is their way of, in Jewish days, their way of saying the Bible, the Old Testament. So he says, the law and the prophets, the, the Old Testament has, 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 has all these stories of prophets who were sent to do the same thing. Remember Elijah holding everybody accountable and King Ahab and Jezebel? Remember Isaiah? Remember Amos? Remember Habakkuk? You know, Jesus is just tapping into that. All the prophets preached the Word of God to God's people. And they were, they were called by God to do that when the king and the people were in darkness, not knowing what was on the mind and heart of God or caring anymore. And they gave their lives to preach the message this one guy named Zechariah, not the one we're used to knowing about, he's killed right in, and out in the, the temple courts by the, by the evil leaders. Uh, Isaiah was sawn in two. Uh, this, was, this was awful. Jeremiah uh, left in a cistern and driven out to Egypt and persecuted heaven. They're all, they're all, but they forced the Word of God onto God's people because if they didn't force it on them, they wouldn't be saved. But Jesus is just helping the people in front of him and us to value the word of God that was forced by the people God called to do it. And he says, John the Baptist and the prophets, and he says, forceful people lay hold of you. Here's the deal. God, the Holy Spirit, is going to drag you. Jesus once said, the Father drags people to him. The Holy Spirit's going to drag you always to the gospel Sometimes, you know, you're even kicking and screaming yourself, but this is the greatest thing in our lives that God has brought us to our knees, repent, made us repent of our sins and believe in his all wonderful grace through his son, Jesus Christ. And here's the guy Jesus talking about the whole, the whole setting, helping us understand that we have the word of God and the church always has. When he says those who, the, the kingdom of God is advancing forcefully and those who receive it take it by force, and then he says in the, at the end of this section, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. He's saying the word of God is the greatest commodity and God's people have leaders and themselves that have to force it out there into the world. In other words, even though there's this thing where Herod's put us in jail and people try to throttle us and they argue against us and say all manners of evil and there's thousands of years of persecution, the church still has to know she's got the greatest message and she's got to get it out there. Just like John the Baptist. Apply that like I wanted to. I just wanted, there's that one verse that I haven't helped you with, it's about Elijah. In this, in this passage, he says, he says uh, something that feels kind of like our modern speakers, but it's not. He says, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah. We are in a day and age where something's not true unless it's true for me. That's called subjectivism. It's, it's not, it's, it, you can have your truth, I've got my truth, but if, if it's true for me, then, then you leave me alone, I have my own truth. Now, as far as American freedom, we're glad that they don't persecute us for what we believe and teach, but that doesn't make us right just because we're not persecuted, right? There is objective truth. Jesus is not saying, Elijah, John the Baptist is the guy that fulfilled the prophecy of Elijah if, if it's true for you when he says, if you're willing to accept. What he's saying is, if your heart's not hard and you're willing to listen to me and let me teach you instead of always think you have to be so smart, if you'll just listen Jesus, John the Baptist is the fulfillment of the last verse of our Bible, the Old Testament, that talked about Elijah coming back. In other words, you're part of epic history here as the Word of God forcefully advances. You and my generation, Jesus says, are getting to see it with your own eyes. He's over there in prison. He's the fulfillment of the ancient prophecy. God, with His Word, told us about we are. It's happening. This is the real gospel for real people, and there ain't nothing bigger. So, here's the application for us today. We dare never lose this word, and we dare never shy away from saying it like it is. And today, you can divide it three, four, five ways. I'm going to divide it three. The message of the church, the Word of God, which is our greatest commodity, stands on this three-legged stool today. One, And make sure I get it just the way I wanted to. There are moral absolutes. Let that sink in. There are moral absolutes. There's right and there's wrong. Now, from God's perspective, there's right and wrong about everything. Because we are fallen humans... We can't know all right and wrong, and we're put in situations where we're not even sure what was the right thing to do, but we know there's right and wrong. That's why we struggle, right? I'm just going to, for a minute, I'm just going to pick on the favorites. There's right and wrong about how you should use your tongue. Just because a country says we have free speech doesn't mean you can just vomit all kinds of negativity out there. There's right and wrong about sexuality. It's only right. But it's between a man and a woman who've made a lifelong promise to one another. There is no other right. It's right or wrong. That's a moral absolute. It's, It's right to defend those who are less fortunate or need your defending. It's all over the prophets. When God jumps on His people, He says, you know there's injustice happening and you're not doing anything about it. He goes, don't you turn your head like it didn't happen and think that I'm not seeing that. It's right to defend the defendless, defenseless. It's wrong not to. You know that we could go on. The Ten Commandments are not the 10 suggestions. It is wrong to dishonor your parents ever. Wrong to cheat, steal or lie. There's no rationalization for it that'll work. Second point. Everyone will be judged by God, and Jesus is God. It says so in Corinthians, that Jesus will be the one sitting on the throne to judge the whole world. Matthew 25, he says, I'm coming back with all my angels, and I'm going to divide all the people. Everyone will be judged by Jesus Christ. That is a, that is a moral absolute, that is a truth that we all must reckon with. The church dare never lose that message. This is the message. Everyone is accountable to God. We need to fear Him. We need to tremble. We need to think about what are... I can't just go on just rationalizing everything and deciding on my own how to live my life. I'm going to stand before God. He sees everything. My life is before Him. That's the church's power. That's what makes us powerful. It's the truth. And finally, the most important truth, Jesus is the only Savior. The guy on the throne came down and died for us, lived for us, died for us. He's the guy speaking. He's the only one that can save our soul, and he's the one that's going to judge us. So for him, it's not how many sins did you commit and how bad were they? For him, it's do you trust in your soul that I actually am bigger than and better, you know, the way the kids say bad, better than all those sins, I took them all away. That I'm your Savior, I'm your only hope. Right? I remember going to dinner with Mary and I with, with a, in Austin. And it was the first time we really got any time to talk with them at all. And I was sharing with them the message of the church and of the gospel. They, they were Christians who'd fallen away from church. And the wife said, do you mean to re- really to tell me that you still hold to this truth? That, that, that only through faith in Jesus Christ is a person saved? You could just feel the peer pressure, right, in the room to be a gracious person at dinner. And, and, and I said, absolutely. That's what we believe. That's what the Bible teaches. There is no hope in any other way. The church, under any kind of pressure, dare never give that message up. It's the point of the spear. It's what penetrates the heart. It's, and, and, and if they immediately, and most of the time they won't, I mean 99% of the time, they if they immediately don't receive it, people are outside of Christ, they need to be confronted by it so they can start dealing with those thoughts, mulling it over in their head and heart. Man, is that really the message of the Bible and the church? Is that Jesus Christ is the only way, the only Savior? Yes! Rejoice in that. That's John the Baptist talking. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's just, and I, I, It's weird that I have to preach that so loudly in the church, but that's the age in which we live, right? We're so relativistic. It's so not PC to say it, but it's the truth that saves. It's the strength of the church. It's not the building the preacher. It's the message. And that's the message. Whew, all God's people said through their mask. Amen. Right. And even if John the Baptist, Jesus Christ, preached the message, still many people will reject it. And it's actually sad, but it's a comfort to us so we don't get this idealism that there must be something wrong with us because people reject it. And this is Jesus talking about it in the next section. So watch this. This is what he says. I, I, I picture my Lord sighing right before he says this, but I don't know. To what, to what can I compare this generation? They are like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling out to others. We played a flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. For John came, he's talking about John the Baptist, remember, setting. John came neither eating or drinking, and they say he has a demon. He's a weirdo. He eats those locusts and wild honey. The Son of Man came hanging out with the people, eating and drinking and saying, he means by drinking wine at their dinner table, eating and drinking. And you say, well, here's a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. He's one of their buddies. But wisdom is proved right by her deeds. I just want to unpack this for you before we go. Um, I want to t- t- about children in the marketplace singing. We, we, we were playing on our, our little trumpets and our flutes and our harps a song like for a wedding, joyful wedding, and you wouldn't join us. Then we were playing a sad, old, you know, miserable song, like a funeral, and you wouldn't, you wouldn't do that. You wouldn't play with us that's what Jesus is picturing. He saw that in the marketplace. I I saw something like that a few times when we had a full-blown school to eight grades here at recess. Sometimes the kids would come in from recess because, I mean, when I'm going to go out there to watch them and then recess is 15 minutes long sometimes, right? 12 minutes of arguing over what rules they were going to use in the game, right? Na, 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 back and forth, fighting the two little personalities that are the egocentric monsters of the bunch. They're back and forth, back and forth. They got their little crowd with them. Finally, three minutes left, they start playing, and now recess is over. And I was, one time I walked out, walked alongside them, and said, you guys got to get a grip. You just wasted your whole recess. But they're upset that they wanted the group to go a certain direction, and they wouldn't give it up. because, And, and then the group didn't go, right? So Jesus said, you know what this generation is like? It's like everything to go this way. And and you look at John the Baptist and he goes, no, I'm going to teach you the Word of God. And you get upset with him because he wouldn't go with you on a dirge. Then you start going, well, we just want to be happy about worldliness and And I mean, excuse me, that was John the Baptist thing. Then he says, well, we want to be self-righteous and we want to, you know, the Pharisees and scribes, and they wanted everything to be just right. And I come and I say, you don't have to do all that to please God because he's got grace. And you say, I'm a drunkard. He goes, you're so into yourselves and your own arguments about what you think is right. You don't listen. Remember, he's just started right before this. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. He goes, we are preaching to you a message of salvation And all you're doing is trying to tell us what you want us to preach, what you want us to say, instead of let us just teach your soul the word of the living God. He goes, you won't listen. That's what this generation is like. And he says, if you want to know, if you want to open your hearts to who we are, John the Baptist and me, he says, wisdom is proved right by her deeds, John the Baptist was willing to say the hard thing, even though it cost him his freedom and later his life. Jesus was willing to say the hard thing, even though it cost him his life. And he said, we're proved right by our deeds. Also, though, Jesus calls that he was supposed to have he had just told the disciples of John that, right? So he said, the the wisdom of who I am, he, one time later, he said it like that too. He said, if you don't believe me because I'm talking about myself as savior of the world, he said, believe me because of the miracles. Who does these things, right? So wisdom is proved right by her deeds. I'm going to stop right there and apply it to us, and we're going to finish with Jesus. The, The church needs to be comforted. That's you. That's me. That we need to just keep teaching and preaching the pure, unadulterated messages of God that come out of this book. And we need to live as honestly and humbly as we can what we know God wants us to do and save Practicing it in our families, practicing in our friendships, practicing it at work, practicing it in church, so that people, when they see us, they they don't see perfection, but they see real, real, authentic Christian community, people struggling to love, forgive, and do life together in the name of God who gave them this wonderful word. And they need to go, what is it about, y'all, what is it that you have? And when they ask, you say, it's this, it's the messages of this that we build our lives on. It's not us, right? That's the wisdom that's proved right by her deeds. That's what rings true. And we've got, some of you are those folks, but you know some folks that that's that's how they're going to come to faith is that they're watching you and us and when they bump into us, they're going to say, there's something there. I got to see what it is. I want that because whatever I'm doing is empty, not working. Wisdom is proved right by her deeds. This is also an important phrase to remember when you are starting to harden your heart and you're starting to say I want I want my church to say it this way I want it to say it that way when you say well wisdom is proved right by her deeds I need to be op- open my ears to hear and be sensitive to the conviction of the holy spirit and make sure that I'm still living in those three truths that there is moral absolutes we're all accountable to God we're going to go before the judgment seat and Christ is the only savior I kind of said it in rapid fire, but we're finishing with Jesus now. How did he prove right that he was the wisest man on the planet? He didn't give in to anger, bitterness, and justice. Instead, he had the wisdom of grace to say, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. To a slime ball next to him on the cross, Today, you'll be with me in paradise, leaving room for every one of us (laughs) to be behind that guy. Very, very end, he never avoided forgiving one person. He was offended, we could say, much more than any one of us has ever been. He was a much bigger forgiver than Old Testament Joseph or David who was chased by Saul. And he never once gave in to anger or bitterness. He forgave. While he was forgiving you and you weren't even born yet. And that deed that he did to rectify our sin before a holy God is what we build our whole lives on, isn't it? That's what faith's about. It's the foundation of a love relationship with God. You love God because you do know that he loves you first, always loves you first. You love him for that reason. We're not all that great at loving God, but even that he forgives. <laughs> he just loves us. Wisdom is proved right by that deed of the gospel, and that's what we don't ever want to lose sight of. So, all these other things I started with, yeah, they come and go. Donovan, you're going to be fine. You got the word. Amen.